Yep. So I can't tell whether it's good or bad that Pastor Keith is here because I can't like make fun of him or anything like that. I got to be sensitive and all that. I'm just kidding. I would never make fun of Keith. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Um, oh, look at this. This like opens up. Gives me a little bit more room. Fancy. Um, good morning. Good to be here. Um, my wife told me I had to apologize to her from the pulpit this morning because um, I was a jerk this morning. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I still think she needs to apologize to me. Whatever. But we'll talk about. <laughs> Anyway, good morning. It's good to be here with you guys. Uh, Last time I was here with you, I shared from Psalm 73, um, and I think my whole family was sick that week, but but now they're all better, and they're here. They're in the the nursery doing their thing, having a good time. Um, But yeah, it's good to be here with you guys. Uh, I've heard so many um, great things about what's happening here from Keith, and and it's just always encouraging to hear the gospel going forth and like taking root in, uh, in my hometown. Not my hometown, but my home county, right? I'm from this area. I grew up in this area. It's just always encouraging to hear the gospel going forth. Um, this morning, we're going to be in the gospel of Matthew. And, um, and I love Matthew's gospel because he's constantly quoting from the Old Testament. Just like constantly quoting from the Old Testament. All sorts of quotations, allusions. And what Matthew is actually trying to do in his gospel is show his audience how the person of Jesus, our Messiah, is not some new invention, but rather he is and always was the trajectory toward which the Old Testament scriptures were driving. And this morning we're going to see how Matthew not only shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but how we as his people in union with him are the extension of that fulfillment as we carry out his mission here um, in 2017 here in Allenwood, here in New Jersey. Um, we got a pretty simple outline this morning. I'm just going to kind of go through a brief story of the text. Uh, we're going to talk about our second point. For those of you guys who are like note takers, Israel, the despised branch. Our third point will be the church, despised branches. Um, and our fourth point will be, but branches bear fruit. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let me just pray for us really quick, and we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you love us, how you care for us, Lord. Um, And I pray now that as we look into your text, um, your holy word, that you would draw us near to yourself, Lord God, that you would convict us of sin um, and make us more and more like your son, Jesus. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as I said... What Matthew is doing is he's trying to show us how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all those Old Testament scriptures. And he does this through a variety of ways, right? For instance, the genealogy right in the beginning of the book, he shows his audience how Jesus is in the line of both David and Abraham, right? So again, not this new idea, this Jesus, this Messiah. He also shows us how the virgin birth reveals how Jesus serves as this more intense recapitulation of this child from Isaiah 7, which you can look up later on if you'd like. Um, The words of Ezekiel find their end in this shepherd king Jesus who stoops down as a servant to his people. We also learn how the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, serves as that faithful Israelite who relived the story of God's people in a manner that proved worthy and lawful, much different from that of the Old, Test- Old Testament people of God who were stiff-necked and ultimately unfaithful. 
And this morning, we're going to discover how the church, as it lives out its mission in union with Jesus, serves as the means by which God is extending hope to the world around us. So this is exciting stuff. I love this passage that we're going to be in. Um, So we find ourselves this morning at the end of the birth narrative of Jesus. He and his family are still in Egypt when Joseph is for the third time visited by an angel in his dream. So let's open up to Matthew 2.19 and we're going to pick up the story there. Well, that's nice. I can have the the passage right there. That's great. Um, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of of Israel. Excuse me, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So I think it's interesting, right? Because Joseph now, um, his first encounter with the angel, he seemed to need a little bit of convincing, right? Which makes sense, right? Because his first encounter with an angel, he was told to marry a young girl who was pregnant. Now, I think most people in this room would be a little confused if they knew it wasn't their child. They'd be like, well, what do you mean I need to marry this woman? She's pregnant. But he does it, and he obeys. Um, He's, um, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Instructions that would obviously make us all cringe. He obeys. The story goes on. And then there's a second encounter that he has with an angel. The angel appears to Joseph and instructs him to flee to Egypt because Herod is after him. And again, Joseph obeys. And finally, we find ourselves at the end of chapter 2. Joseph is visited by an angel a third time, and he's instructed to head back to Israel. Herod is dead, and things are looking much better for the child at this point. So the story continues. And he arose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So once again, Joseph picks up his entire family. They head back to the land of Israel. This is a 380-mile journey with a child. Now, I'm sure many of us have experienced traveling with children before. It took us like 30 minutes just to get out of the house this morning, let alone take a 380-mile journey. And, And I don't think Jesus had an iPad that he can kind of scroll through, right? So this was... This was a a task before him, right? But he remains faithful, right? You'll notice the story as you watch Joseph. He's he's faithful. He's faithful. He questions sometime. He's not perfect, but he is faithful. Upon their arrival, he gets word that Herod's son, Archelaus, is now reigning over Judea. This poses a problem, um, as Archelaus was a brutal figure. There's one account of him in response to an uprising taking place in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover where he slaughters about 3,000 people. Archelaus isn't a good guy. So Joseph, as we saw in the text, was warned in a dream and in response he and his family fled to the district of Galilee and they settled in the small city of Nazareth. This is where we're going to camp out for a bit this morning. The text says that he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now this is the point where we open up our Old Testaments and we try to figure out where this verse is that says he shall be called a Nazarene. But the thing about this particular verse, it does not exist in the Old Testament. It's very confusing for us as we're reading this text because it says that the prophet said that he shall be called a Nazarene, but it's not there. It's not anywhere in the Old Testament. So what in the world could Matthew possibly be talking about here? Well, 
we don't need to worry because there's one clear difference in how Matthew presents this particular prophecy as opposed to some of the other prophecies. See, Matthew points to a singular prophet in almost all of the other allusions and quotations from the Old Testament. But here, he quotes from the prophets, plural. He's pulling information from a wider range. So instead of a direct quotation, we have what we call more of an allusion here. See, see, Matthew is alluding to the entire Old Testament. Matthew's telling us something about the child, and he's doing so by showing us that the entire Old Testament scripture is pointing to this child, which is key, which is really important for us to keep in our minds right now. So it's important for us to remember Matthew's audience. Who was he speaking to? Matthew was preaching primarily to a Jewish audience so that they might believe that Jesus truly was the promised Messiah, which makes sense because, as we said, he's constantly alluding and referencing the Old Testament. But in this particular section, he does so, which I think is so interesting, by using some wordplay. And he also touches on this already existing knowledge that individuals would have had about the city of Nazareth and those who came, who, those who came from that particular city. So when, Matthew, when Matthew's readers heard this word Nazareth or Nazarene, two things would have popped into their mind. The first thing, the Hebrew word Natsar, which means branch, a word used by the prophets to speak of the promised Messiah and the faithful remnant of God's people. This would have popped into their mind. They would have been like, oh, I, I remember my, my grandfather telling me this story around the fire or, or my mom or my grandmother telling me these stories at bedtime. A backwoods town would have been another thing that came to mind for the have-nots of the ancient world, a despised people, which also brings up some images about the type of Messiah that was promised, something that we'll talk about in just a few minutes. And this all fits within the structure of how Matthew is going to be arguing his case. There have been constant references to the Old Testament, so an allusion here should not surprise us. So this brings us to our next point, Israel, the despised branch. In the minds of Matthew's hearers, the word Natsar or branch brings up a few sections of the Old Testament, but one in particular, which is where we're going to camp out today, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall judge by what his eyes see, or not by what his eyes sees, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This text tells us about someone who is unlike anyone that has ever existed on the face of the earth. How many people do we know where the Spirit falls down upon them, where they have the fear of the Lord, but yet they are righteous and they judge with equity? They judge not by things they hear, not by things they see, but they judge with righteousness. There's something different about this particular judge. There's something different about this particular individual whom the Spirit fell upon. 
something different from all the other prophets and kings and people of Israel and all even the people that we kind of know, right? Right? Because we make judgments based on things we see, right? Those prejudices that we might have. We make judgments on things we hear about people. It takes, it takes time for us to make accurate and true judgments. It's not how we function because we're, we're people, we're human, right? And we're not like this particular human. There's something different about us. But this human judges in righteousness. This child whom this passage is referring to judges with equity for the poor, for the meek. He has an eye towards those who are less than, who are marginalized, who are not of the upper echelon of society, but are actually those who are weak and despised. He has an eye towards them. He has a heart towards them. Something that those of us who are in Christ should be leaning toward. As we travel through this text, we begin to see why Matthew would have alluded to it. What does this passage tell us about the branch? This branch bears fruit. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon this branch. We see this happen to Jesus in the following chapter when John baptizes him. He's the type of man who judges with righteousness, who cares for the poor and the meek of the earth. He opposes the wicked and he is faithful. He's faithful. And as a result, if you continue reading on in chapter 11 of Isaiah, the world no longer is a place where war and discord run rampant, but rather it becomes a place where evil and wickedness is no longer tolerated. It becomes a place where the kingdom of God is finally realized in its fullest capacity. The task that was initially intended for God's people, Israel, now finds its resting place on the child, the Nazarene. So when Matthew's audience read these words, they were reminded about that branch. They were reminded about the promises. And now they would begin to see those promises had a resting place in the carpenter's son who hailed from Nazareth. While at the same time that the branch is being held up as this beacon of righteousness and justice, we also need to remember that Jesus was called a Nazarene. Jesus was called a Nazarene. Another way of putting this is that Jesus was called a nobody. We were listening to Breakfast with the Beatles this morning as we were driving in. A nowhere man, as John Lennon would have put it, right? And the reason I say this is because Nazareth was a place of obscurity, nothingness. People viewed Nazarenes in the same way my old man used to speak about Jersey drivers when he was in Brooklyn, or the way some of us might speak of South Jersey drivers, or those from Pennsylvania. And if anyone here is from South Jersey or Pennsylvania, it's not my fault, it's my dad's fault. As one commentator puts it, Nazareth was so obscure that when the first century Jewish historian Josephus listed the towns of Galilee, he did not even mention it. It was a settlement too obscure to even be called a village or a town. We see this in John's Gospel when Jesus is calling his disciples. He calls Philip, and the story goes, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? That would have been so confusing. Because here we are, right? Let's pretend we're in the first century and we're waiting, we're anticipating the Messiah and all of a sudden we hear that he came from New Jersey, right? 
Now, we might think that's awesome, but the rest of the country would be like, yeah, New Jersey, that's where the Messiah came from? Like, have you seen the Jersey Shore? The armpit of America, that's where the Messiah hails from? And it probably would have been even worse than that. Probably would have been even more difficult to comprehend Nazareth. This obscure, backwoods town. That's where the Messiah was hailing from. So it made sense when Nathaniel was confused. Really? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip responds, come and see. Matthew is doing something here. He wants his readers to think back on what their Bible said about the coming Messiah. The Messiah, as we look through the Old Testament Scriptures, as we listen to the prophet, prophets, this is their message. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is what the Old Testament talks about when it references this coming Messiah. And for some reason, in their anticipation, in their waiting, they weren't remembering, they weren't seeing, they didn't understand that this particular Messiah that we're longing for is actually from the bottom of the barrel. From the bottom of the barrel. Which is weird because so often in churches we're striving for position, but Jesus was one that humbled himself. Humbled himself. It says, I want to just kind of reference a passage here in in Philippians. I had my spot saved, but then I lost it. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says in verses 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith and the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you, and this is where it's really important, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This whole calling of being in Christ, this whole calling of us as followers of Jesus is in line with the type of person Jesus was. One who suffered, one who was despised, one who was rejected by men, who people hid their face from. That's what it means for us to be in Christ. is to emulate that very life of suffering, of moving ourselves lower rather than higher. This is Matthew's point. It's the point he has began making throughout the entire birth narrative of Jesus. Beginning in chapter 1, Matthew refers to the Messiah as Jesus Christ, God saves. God is with us, the Christ. And then as we slip into chapter 2, all of a sudden, we start hearing Jesus being referred to as the child. And in the final pen stroke of the birth narrative, Jesus, the King of Kings, the promised Messiah, the branch bursting forth from Israel that has been whittled down to nothing but a stump, he's called a Nazarene. The title that would in three years' time be nailed to the cross above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So we hear Nathaniel's question echoing in the background. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Matthew answers that question 
by not only pointing his readers back to the lowly character the Messiah would embody, but by also ringing in their ears their own history, their failures as a nation, as a people, how they deteriorated from a kingdom to a stump. But now from that stump, the stump of Jesse, David's father, there would arise a branch that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon. A branch that would pick up where Israel failed as a people, reliving their story as the faithful and true Israelite, and would through his death and resurrection bear fruit so that a new people might be established. That God's promises to Abraham might be fulfilled, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And this is our God. And this is what we celebrate during Christmas as we're opening up presents around a Christmas tree. One scholar puts it like this. He added to himself an entire human nature while remaining fully God. There is no other way that he could have come to earth, live an obedient life, and die an obedient death except by this humbling. This is the wonder and majesty of the gospel. And this is important. God himself has come. He has come not only to be with us, but he has come as one of us. He was called a Nazarene. And when we think about that, not only did he come to be with us, but he came as one of us. This should completely flip our understanding of what it means to be on mission in God's kingdom. Right? We don't come as those who come from above to help those and, and, in some sort of like weird colonizing way, but actually we come as those whom we're trying to come alongside and help. Right? We are to be servants of God in the same way Jesus was a servant of his Father, incarnating, that means taking on the flesh of those whom we want to serve and, and be lights to. That's much different than like throwing a few bucks at somebody, right? Right? It says in, in First or Second Thessalonians, I'm not sure, that Paul not only shared like the gospel with them, but he shared his entire life with them. There's something different about a way a Christian a follower of Jesus, is supposed to engage this world. There's something massively different. It's not one who comes in, like I said, as a colonizer from above, but it's one who actually takes on the sufferings, takes on the pain, takes on the burdens of those whom we're trying to engage, whom we're trying to reach. Oh, and what a calling. What a lofty calling to be like the one who calls us. What an incredible task we have before us. And this is where we come in. The church, despised branches. The beauty of the Isaiah 11 passage is that the branch, the place where the Spirit of the Lord rested, bears fruit. The goal all along was that Abraham's descendants would be innumerable and that the glory of the Lord would cover the entire earth. And this is precisely what happened. Following the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower the church, the good news of the kingdom spread like wildfire. You guys have been going through the book of Acts. You've seen how this functions. You've seen how the Spirit of God rested, came down at Pentecost. You saw the second Pentecost with Cornelius, right? And more people came to save saving faith. And what did they do? They, they, they went out and the church started spreading like wildfire. Sometimes they didn't go out on purpose. Sometimes they needed a little persecution to push them out the door. Sometimes we need the same thing in our lives. But the beauty of the book of Acts is it shows us how the church just grew and grew and grew because they kept on going. 
they kept on going to people who did not know. And the beauty of that Cornelius passage, right, is that no longer was it this Jewish thing, it became a worldwide thing. It became a worldwide thing where Peter all of a sudden is like crossing these weird boundaries that he would never have crossed that probably cost him some friends in so doing, which is the same thing we as followers of Jesus are called to do, to break down those barriers, to cross those boundaries, because guess what? It doesn't matter what others think of us. It matters that we're serving God. It matters that we're taking the gospel to the least of these, serving their spiritual needs, serving their physical needs, because guess what? You can't preach the gospel in only word. It has to be in word and deed. And that's the beauty of this passage. And even as we look at the Isaiah 11 passage, he's talking about things, right? This is not some spiritual lesson like help the spiritually poor. No, Jesus cares about the physically poor, the physically destitute, the physically marginalized and oppressed peoples. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's this holistic thing. It nurtures our spiritual, um, our, our spirit, and it nurtures our body. And how does it do that? Through the church. Through the church. The hands and feet of Jesus are all of us in this room as we go out and as we proclaim Jesus, as we wash cars at a car wash, is a way that we proclaim Christ. Why? Because we're serving our communities. These little things that sometimes we think aren't a big deal. The, the people who are watching my kids right now in the, in the nursery are, are the hands and feet of Jesus to my children, and I'm grateful for that, that not only do they get to see Jesus from me and my wife most of the time, they also get to see Jesus from other people, from other people as they care for them. And what does that look like in our midst as a community of people? It's that loving one another. It's that caring for one another. It's that when someone's sick, bringing them meals, sitting with them, not necessarily trying to solve all their problems, but sometimes just sitting with them and listening and being there for people. Taking on those difficult problems that, that seem like way out of our league, but enveloping ourselves in them because that's precisely what Jesus did. I think I mentioned this last time I was here where when we serve one another, it's not this let me throw a ladder down into the pit, but rather it's let me jump in the pit with you. Let me jump in the pit with you. That's what it means for us to be these followers of Jesus that we see so clearly clearly outlined in the text. This is what that Isaiah 11 passage is getting at. This is what that Matthew passage is getting at. This is what it means that the child was a Nazarene. He took on the lowest form, the lowest form, so that we might know God. So that we might know God. That should, that should stir something up in us. That should, get us, that should get us excited. Because our God left the glory of heaven, took on flesh, but he didn't take on like, like really awesome flesh. He didn't take on flesh that was crowned in gold. He took on marginalized Jewish flesh Right? Because in the Roman Empire at that time, Jews were not seen as like the cool guys. Like they were negative. And not only did he take on Jewish flesh, but he took on Nazareth flesh. So, so it's like, let's keep, like, so God, all right, so let me lower myself a little bit to a human. Let me lower myself a little bit more to a Jewish human. Let me lower myself a little bit more to a Jewish human who hails from Nazareth, born in a cave 
being sought after trying to be killed by the king of the people who are ruling over us. And he did that on our behalf. So how should we then live out our lives? Right? Because we are now the despised branches. But this wasn't good news for everyone. In fact, there were many who sought to squash this, this Jesus movement. The religious leaders, the Roman Empire itself, followers of Jesus, were a despised people. And as I just said, this, this, they, they referred to the followers of Jesus as the sect of the Nazarene, which by no means was a term of endearment. But that's part of the deal. Jesus taught his followers the truth before he was killed. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And this is following the section where Jesus refers to himself as the vine and his followers as branches. So in the same way our Messiah lived his life fulfilling the words of the prophets, we as the church pick up where he left off, empowered by God himself and the person and work of the Holy Spirit to go forth into this world proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. We have a tradition in our family, and, um, and it's strange because my wife's family had the exact same tradition growing up, that every year around Christmas time, usually the week after, we head into Brooklyn to Diker Heights to... to um, to walk around the streets and look at the beautiful Christmas light displays. Anyone ever been to Diker Heights to see the Christmas lights? You should go. It's really cool. Um, but, um, this, we, uh, this, um, this time when we went, we, were, we parked over on 80th Street and 11th Avenue, just a few blocks away from everything, and we walked up. We passed this beautiful old Episcopal church called St. Philip's. And I made the comment to my wife about what a beautiful building it was and how it sits on this gorgeous property. And then I noticed something really interesting on the sign on their front lawn. It said, making Christ known by word and deed. And I just thought to myself, that's so simple. That's so simple. That's the point, that we, as the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in union with Jesus, the Nazarene, this sect of Nazarenes, we exist to make Christ known, to tell people about the good news of the kingdom, and to serve people, to lay down our rights, our comforts, our comforts, our preferences, so that others might be held up. This is the calling that the gospel places upon our lives, to reflect Jesus to the world, but we're only able to reflect Jesus if we're living like Jesus lived, thinking like Jesus thought, speaking as Jesus spoke, doing as Jesus did, and this isn't some mystery. We don't need to all like sit down and try to figure out what it means to live as Jesus did, to do as Jesus did, to speak as Jesus did, because all we need to do is open up the Gospels and see what he did. Look at the text. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Look at the new law he gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, it's clear how we're supposed to live our lives. But that's hard work. That's hard work. That's scary work because it involves risking everything for the sake of the gospel. It, it, it involves making ourselves less than so that others might be regarded as more than. That's not something we, especially as Americans, are, are too fond of doing. Right? We're a pick-ourselves-up-by-our-bootstraps sort of, sort of people. But what God is calling us to do is to pick other people up by bootstraps that they might not even have. 
This is what the gospel calls us to. And oh, what a beautiful calling it is. What a beautiful calling it is. It doesn't guarantee riches in this life. It doesn't guarantee comfort. Actually, it guarantees discomfort in this life. It guarantees stress in this life. It guarantees pain in this life. It guarantees all the things we as a culture have been taught to run as far away from as we can. It promises those things. But what it does also promise, it promises us life eternal. It promises us joy. It promises us peace. And it promises us a taste a glimpse of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. It's a taste, but oh, when you've tasted it, oh, it's good. It's so good. And yeah, it really is frustrating sometimes when, when you're trying to help people and it's not working. Right? We've all experienced those times, but that doesn't mean we stop giving of ourselves. That's not what it means. It means that we continue giving. It means that we continue living in light of that Sermon on the Mount. Which brings us to our final point in the outline. Branches bear fruit. And I'm almost done. When we look back at Isaiah 11, we notice that the branches bear fruit. And looking around this room and from hearing about your community from Keith, um, there's evidence of the fruit-bearing nature of that branch. And the beauty of the gospel is that we, as followers of Jesus, become branches. We see this discussed in Romans 11. We also see this talked about in John 15, where it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. For those of you who garden out there, even simple tomato gardening, right? You've got to pluck those suckers that come out in between the branches so that the, so that the plant bears more fruit. Fruit-bearing by nature is what branches do, but what does it mean to bear fruit? I mean, simply put, we bear fruit when we obey God's commands. That's it. And God commands us to love him and to love one another. And the example given to us for what it means to love is the example of Jesus found in the scriptures. The example that Israel was supposed to be to the world. And it's the type of love that lays aside its own rights and comforts for the sake of those around us. It's that word and deed stuff we just talked about. And I think also as we read this passage, it should give us pause because Jesus tells us that the branches that do not bear fruit are removed, which means that fruit bearing is a non-negotiable for the follower of Jesus. That's hard. Those are hard words. Fruit bearing is a non-negotiable for the follower of Jesus. Right? If we are actively choosing to not love other people, right? because we can all say, yeah, we love Jesus. Right, that's easy. Yeah, we love Jesus. We sing songs on Sunday mornings. We sang at the, going, the drum. I mean, that was, that was great. Um, we can do that. That's easy, right? We can even do our devotions. We can know the Bible inside and out. Be able to quote from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We can know all the doctrine. You guys are studying theology on Wednesday nights throughout the year. You can know all that whole book. You can know Ryrie's entire book. But if you don't love people... thrown into the fire, the Bible says. Right? That's scary. And that should give us pause. That should cause us to look at our lives. So how do we bear fruit? The answer is obvious. We tell the people about the good news of the kingdom and we love other people. Right? It means discipling one another. It involves listening to one another. It means applying the truth of the scriptures to one another's lives challenging and encouraging one another, even when it feels uncomfortable to do so. 
spending time with hurting brothers and sisters, even when their problems seem beyond our own capacity. It's going out of our way to assist people when they're in need, whether it be a physical need or an emotional need. It's loving the people in our community who might not be as fun as your inner circle of friends. It's forgiving a spouse when they've hurt you deeply. I asked for forgiveness this morning. It's pursuing a friend when you think they might have wronged you or that they don't care about your problems. It's exercising patience when it's simply easier to write somebody off. It's, it's engaging someone about their marriage when you see something off about it. It's engaging someone about their finance, finances when you see something off about it. It's engaging something about their parenting when you might see something off about it. It's engaging someone who you might be in school with when you notice that they're going down a road they ought not go. There's risk involved there, right? How many of you like being told about how to be a better parent or a better husband or a better wife or a better steward of your finances? We don't like hearing that information, especially the finance stuff. Like, that's personal in America, right? That's our thing. Like, I'll, I'll do this stuff, but when it comes to my finances, no, I don't want to talk about that. Following Jesus means engaging those difficult topics with one another. It's stooping down to the lowest position and washing the feet of the people who have hurt you, who you know will probably hurt you in the future, because love covers a multitude of sins. If you are a parent, you know this, right? Like, you know this, that even, even when they have done things all day that you want to just launch them out of a window, you'll still change their diaper, You'll still give them dinner. You'll still kiss them goodnight. And you'll still tell them you love them, even when they say, I don't love you anymore, Daddy. Right? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We can do that with our own kids, but can we do that with one another? And the reality is is that we know what's right and we know what it means to love others. And we need to ask ourselves and one another why we're not doing the things we know are absolutely right. Are we embarrassed? Are we afraid that there might be consequences? Is it a little too uncomfortable for us? Will it interfere with our plans? My wife grew up in a Christian home, and I'll close with with this. And as a result, we have a lot of different memories. Um, For example, she didn't see Ghostbusters or Blazing Saddles until she married me. Um, Maybe I shouldn't have seen, I mean, I don't know. but, But other differences are that she grew up surrounded by people who pointed her to Jesus. She went to Sunday school, she read the Bible as a child, she sang songs about Jesus, and and there's one song that her father taught her that we laugh about, but it speaks a ton of truth, and it's overwhelmingly relevant to our conversation this morning. Um, I don't even know the title, but the lyrics are, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Any, like, old school cats that know that song? No? Yeah, right? I I mean, I think it's such a great song, and I love it because it's simple, right? Our joy comes from putting ourselves last and loving Jesus and others first, which is so counterintuitive, but it's the simple calling for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Fruit-bearing will look and feel strange for us because it goes against the memories of our old sinful nature, but as followers of Jesus, it's who we are now. In Christ, we're made to bear fruit because that is precisely what Jesus did. It's what our lives need to be about because in bearing fruit, like the sign in front of that Episcopal church in Brooklyn, we're making Christ known, and that is the point. We are not the stars of the story, but we are made to reflect the star of the story. And we do this by embodying the humble character of the Nazarene, laying down our rights, and living our lives for the sake of the people and communities we encounter on a daily basis. That's what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called 
a Nazarene. We are called Nazarenes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the truth of your word, of your gospel, um, of your son Jesus, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that this would be true of us, Lord, today, this week, um, the weeks to follow, that we would live our lives in a manner that reflects your son Jesus by the love we have for one another, by the love we have for those we encounter, Lord, as we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.